0: when you say enough is enough is enough, and when you stand for Christian moral and spiritual values, it makes a difference. What would it take for this time next year for us as a congregation to look back and see God at work in our own lives, in the lives of our culture, our society, our family, and our nation? Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. As most of you are aware, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation over the last few Sundays together, and today we come to chapter 16. And allow me to give you a little warning What we're about to read in chapter 16 is more than a little complicated. It is filled, as chapters in Revelation often are, with symbolism and imagery. Today is a complex passage, and it deals with the unsavory topic of the wrath and judgment of God. So we have quite a challenge in front of us this morning. And so we're reading the first seven verses together. The Apostle John is writing, and he's writing around the year 95 A.D., and he writes these words. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The angel went and poured out his bowl on the land. And ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, for you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Then in verse 8, we have the fourth angel poured out his bowl. And then verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl. In verse 12, the sixth angel. And then in verse 15 is where I want to stop this morning. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading of his holy word. Some New Testament scholars will tell you that when you read the book of Revelation, it is like climbing up a spiral staircase. And John takes you to particular levels and you think, well, clearly I've reached the end of this level. And lo and behold, he takes you to another level. In chapter 6 through 8, for example, he writes about the seven seals. Once you make your way through the first seal, and the second seal, and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and you're getting towards the end, and you think, at last, he's going to summarize it all up, he's going to bring it to a conclusion, he then moves you to another level. And in chapters 8 through 11, he unfolds the seven trumpets. And then 15 and 16, and we're looking at 16 as you know today, you see the seven angels with the seven bowls. And Revelation can be a tough book to get your head around because it has what we call apocalyptic writing, rich in symbolism, rich in imagery. And of course, the apocalyptic writing tends to be Well, it tends to be, what's the best way to sum it up? It is about revealing. But when John writes in picture language, he's writing about what was, what is, and what is still to come. And not only does he write in rich symbolism and imagery, he takes you gradually up the spiral staircase, and when he takes you you to a new level, he writes from a different perspective. So you often see the same thing. You have what New Testament scholars call parallelism going on within the language. And so chapter 6 to 8, you see the perspective of the suffering church. Now, when John was first writing, as you know, AD 65, he was undergoing persecution. Christians were being arrested, they were being tortured for the faith, some were being put to death under the Roman emperor Domitian. John himself was arrested and put on the Greek island of Patmos. And so he writes chapter 6 to 8 from the perspective of the suffering church. And then chapters 8 through 11, you read from the perspective of world history, the rising and falling, the ascendancy and decline of kingdoms and emperors. Uh, And it's historical by nature. And then as he goes up again, he takes you from uh, up to chapter 16, and now we see it from the perspective of God's throne room. And as we get into chapter 16 today, what you're going to see is that John is writing by being in close proximity to the throne room of God himself in heaven, and he sees the unworking of God's purposes and promises and plans from God's perspective. And so that's where we're going. Now, you may be here this morning and saying, "Now, Richard, let me stop you right there because I've appreciated the literary background, I understand the spiral staircase, I understand he takes you from one level to another, I understand that he writes in symbolic language, and I understand that I honestly shouldn't watch CNN news this afternoon and expect to see seven angels pouring God's wrath on various countries and in oceans and seas and in the air. I shouldn't expect to see that. I understand the symbolism. I get that. But I have a question, and it relates to the passage we've already read. I have a question, and in fact, I've got a couple of comments. Richard, do you understand that when you talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, it comes across as narrow-minded, judgmental. It comes across a kind of a little primitive, puritanical. And I know we used to believe that stuff 75, 100 years ago, but really, honestly, today in this day and age, we still believe that? Really? And Richard, what's more, is this that when you talk in these terms, it simply, it, well, quite honestly, it turns people off. So wh- why are you talking about it? Well, the reason I'm talking about it is this, that on Sunday mornings, when we gather for worship, we intentionally seek to equip ourselves for living out our faith day by day by day by day. And we know it's not easy to live out your faith, It is often messy. It's often we find ourselves on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday seeking to live out our faith. We can get distracted and go off at a tangent, and it's difficult to live out your faith day by day. But on Sunday morning, we intentionally work our way through Scripture, and on some Sunday mornings, we're going to have to deal with tough issues. Issues I would rather not talk about, quite honestly, I'd rather give you a hug, we have warm fuzzies, we go home feeling nice. But that's not what Revelation teaches. And As a pastor, I have to take it seriously. And as Christians seeking to grow in our faith, each one of us has to take the Word of God seriously. And when it talks about the judgment of God and the wrath of God, we need to ask ourselves, how seriously do we take it? Because when a culture and a society or when an individual says, honestly, that kind of belief system is a little archaic, barbaric, primitive, we no longer believe it, please hear this. It is much easier to write off the judgment of God and the wrath of God and the passages in Scripture we don't like. It's much easier to write them off than it is to take them seriously. Because if you write it off, you never have to live up to its standards. You can live any way you want. I can't honestly tell you the number of times someone has said to me in conversation, or say to me, now Richard, you're a Christian, you're a pastor, you believe that stuff. Really, in this day and age, can we simply agree that as a society and a culture and a nation, we are mature adults? We are reasonable, we are responsible people. We can set our own moral standards and we can live up to those moral standards. Well, if as a nation, a society, a culture, a community, we are capable of setting our own reasonable moral standards and we are able to live up to those standards, why on earth do we have a sheriff's department and a court system? We may set the standards, but we cannot live up to them at times. Why do we have a judicial system if we are capable of keeping those standards? Back in October and in November, for several Sundays, we looked at sin in all of its distasteful, shocking What's the best way to say it? The manifestation of sin. We saw it in the shootings in Las Vegas when an individual hired a hotel room, murdered 58 other people and wounded 528. Do you remember it? It was only 10 days later we saw it happen again in a church on a Sunday morning in Texas where 28 people were murdered. This time last Sunday in California, a teenager escaped her family home, phoned the sheriff's department. When the sheriff's department turned up, they found 17 children abused, malnourished, and neglected, and a 10-year-old was chained to the bed. Folks, we take that seriously as individuals, as a community, as a nation. We say on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, life matters. And there are times in our life when we give in to the influence of sin, and we do what we shouldn't do, and we end up hurting those around us. That's what sin does. But we care about genocide in Rwanda. We care as a nation when 55 million children have been aborted since 1973. We care. That's why we have a Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we say, if we are capable of setting our own moral standards and our own spiritual standards, how come we can't keep up with them? How come? Because sin is alive and well on planet earth, and the judgment of God is what is poured out against the depravity of humanity. Now, when you come to the opening words of verse of chapter 16, look at them with me. And John is writing, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl in the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out in the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped the image. Now let me unpack that a little, and let me do it as quickly and as carefully as I can. What is John saying? Remember John is telling us about what was, what is, and what is still to come. And when you think of evil incarnate, the most horrific of crimes, think in your mind of Nazi Germany, who rounded up millions and millions of people simply because of their Jewish background. Arrested, tortured, and then put to death on an industrial scale, unprecedented, and let's hope it never happens again. And what Revelation is telling us is this, that in the midst of all of that, God will use whatever he can to restrict and bring to an end that sort of evil. That's what's going on in this passage. And what John is reminding of of is this, that from time to time throughout human history, we will come across situations like that, and God will intervene, and he will bring about his justice. Because when we talk of the wrath of God, think of the justice of God. The wrath of God is not when God gets upset with someone and reaches for the smite button just to keep them in order. That's not the wrath of God. The wrath of God in scripture is this, God's settled, holy response to evil incarnate. That's what's going on in Revelation. And John is saying there will be periods in heaven when God intervenes at that level to bring it to an end. That which was, which is, and which is still to come. God will not abandon his children and he will not take his hands off them. Now think about it in the first century. When all across the known world, the Roman Empire of its day, if you walk downtown in any of the major cities that John is writing to, he's writing to seven congregations in Asia Minor. One of them was Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus. Several of us were there together on a tour. Ephesus had a sports stadium that could seat 55,000 people. This was a city of 500,000. That's a big city back then and today it's in ruins. The Roman Empire today is nowhere. In fact, we call our children after the Apostle John, and we call our dog Caesar. How much has that got out of kilter? But in the first century, you had to worship him for being Caesar. Caesar. And what John is saying is this, the empires will come and go, kings will come and fall, but God in his righteous judgment will continue from one generation to another, to another, to another. And when we as a nation, as a culture, as a society, as individuals, set moral and spiritual standards, and we seek to keep up to those standards, we will know the blessing of God. When we wander from those standards, we have to face His judgment on those standards. Now, please hear me when I try and say this as gently as I possibly can. That as Christian people, we must wrestle with tough and difficult issues from time to time. And when we, on this Sunday, Sanctity of Life Sunday, say that there is life in the womb, it is beyond scientific debate. It's as simple as that. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of emotion around the issue of abortion, and I understand it fully. Please hear me on this. I've worked with enough people who have have struggled with it, and no one wants to wish anyone in that situation. Science is clear. There is life in the womb. And when we don't take a moral stance to protect those lives, we are failing in our Christian duty. When we say morally and spiritually, that standards no longer matter, and anything goes on the internet and on television and in public radio, we will be asked to be answerable for that, because as Christian people, we have to take a stance and we take a stance graciously and gently and lovingly, but we take a stance none the nonetheless. And we say integrity matters. Honesty matters. We believe that character matters, that prayer is importance, that holiness in the Christian life as we're living out our life and faithfulness in marriage matters, that human sexuality matters. And if the culture and society around us considers us to be a little primitive in our thinking, out of touch with society, that really is okay because we don't live the Christian life in order to, what? Receive applause from the culture, but we live the Christian life in obedience to God because in living in obedience to him, we are saying life matters and it's important and holiness matters, and faithfulness matters, and prayer matters, and those standards are standards because life is so much better when you live up to them. And folks, please hear this. Whenever a sin in a culture becomes accepted, that sin then becomes Celebrated. And if you are willing to stand up and say, I will not go along with that sin and I will not celebrate it, you will be attacked and the sin will be celebrated. How on earth did we get to this point? How on earth did we get to this point? And John is saying that the judgment of God and the wrath of God matters. Because when we treat him with contempt and disdain and indifference, he will lift his hand off of our nation. And we need to take that seriously. The Roman Empire did not in the year AD 95, and they are nowhere today. We need to take it seriously. Last Sunday morning, we touched on several spiritual resolutions for the new year, and I wanted to touch on number two today as we try and wrap things up. The second spiritual resolution I highlighted last Sunday was this, and it was a challenge to us as both individuals and as a congregation, and the challenge was, what is the most important way you will, by God's grace, try to make this year different from last year? And I think most of us have our own thoughts about that in our family life, in our private life, and they're to be worked out individually. But I wonder as a congregation, how would we answer that question? As a church, seeking to live out our faith in a 21st century downtown environment, what would we say? How would we respond? What is the most important way you will, by God's grace, try to make this year different from last year? And allow me to suggest an answer, that as a congregation, we will pray for our city, And our society, and our culture, and our nation. I think most of us, looking back over the last 55 to 60 years, would say accurately there is a very real danger that we are standing on the precipice of moral and spiritual bankruptcy as a nation. I don't say that lightly, neither do I take any delight in that. It's awful but that's where we are. So, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we say there is a better way? There is a better way when, as folks in our children's PTA, in our neighborhood groups, in law and education and medicine and retail, and finance. When we as individuals stand up for our faith and refuse to be bullied by society, refuse to be marginalized, refuse to be minimized, and say, I will not shut up, I will not sit down, I will not get over it, because there are such things as moral and spiritual values that are helpful and healthy for us as a society. And we do it with love and and we do it with grace, and we stand firm. And that's the point John was making halfway through this chapter. He is saying, stay awake, be alert, look around. In AD 95, for the next two and a half centuries, Christians lost over six million people who were martyred for their faith. But at the end of that period, Christianity became the official religion of the empire and it spread throughout the world as a result and Hazard had an influence for good from that day forward. Why? Because when you are willing to take a gracious stand, when you refuse to be marginalized, when you refuse to be minimized, when you stay awake, when you keep your eye on unborn children, when you say enough is enough is enough, and when you stand for Christian moral and spiritual values, it makes a difference. What would it take for this time next year, for us as a congregation to look back and see God at work in our own lives, in the lives of our culture, our society, our family, and our nation. Would to God that He would work mightily in our midst. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture this morning. And we freely confess that we are not the people we ought to be. And so we ask, O God, that You would equip us and enable us to be Christian men and women, boys and girls, and to live for Christ each day and to do so lovingly, graciously, but nonetheless live for You. Strengthen us, equip us, give us all that we need because we recognize we cannot do it on our own. Father, come alongside us, please, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you like to explore membership at First Presbyterian Church? Join us for a new member weekend and discover how we worship and live out our faith with each other and our community. The weekend consists of three sessions taking place on Friday evening, Saturday morning, and Sunday afternoon. You'll enjoy a meal with our senior pastor and other leaders, learn what we believe, and hear about our vision. Child care is available. Register today at firstpressgreenville.org.